From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The voice is a fragile thing, and few singers end up with 50-year careers at the Metropolitan Opera. The bass Paul Plischka is one of them. That is how the New York Times introduced its March 2018 piece about Plishka, who retired for the second time after playing Benoit and Alcindoro in La Boheme at the end of the 2017 season. Described as velvety, lovely, a voice that would make one want to wallow in a single note, Plishka's deep bass earned him the Pennsylvania Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts in 1992. Several years earlier, Plishka landed in the Hall of Fame for Great American Opera Singers at the Academy of Vocal Arts in Philadelphia. He debuted with the Met in 1967 as the monk in La Gioconda. Fifty seasons later, Plishka had appeared in 1,672 performances of 88 roles, including as Philip in Don Carlo, King Mark in Tristan und Isolde, Raimondo in Lucia di Lammermoor, and as the title characters of Boris Godunov and Falstaff. In fact, according to the Met, only eight other people have sung more with the company. January 28, 2012, the night of Plishka's final Met performance launching his first retirement, conductor James Levine signed a gift book that chronicled Plishka's career this way, quote, I have treasured your extraordinary artistry and cherished your beautiful friendship through all these great operas and all those exciting years that seemed to go by in a flash. It is my great pleasure to welcome you, Paul Plishka, to Coastline. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. So glad to finally have you with us. Now, you never imagined as a child that you were going to land in the world of opera. You, you imagined you might become a trucker or a farmer. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up. Well, to me, I, I always felt at that point in my, my young time— my youth, I would be a um, truck driver, or a football player, farmer. I really enjoy that. But when I was in kindergarten, teachers told my parents that I should have voice lessons. And thank goodness they didn't do anything about it. Because uh, I always compare opera singers to baseball pitchers. Where somebody who's trained one, one muscle in their body and the pitcher's arm compared to the uh, opera singer's voice. So um, so your parents never actually sent you for voice lessons? No, they never did, and thank goodness, because you shouldn't, you really shouldn't begin training that voice uh, too early. It's like, like the little boys who play uh, pitchers in baseball. Uh, they start when they're teenagers or even earlier than that, and their arm is, the muscles aren't developed correctly, and they can harm them. They can do damage to it. So I always tell people who want to have a child that's sort of gifted, wants want to sing, 
to take a, an instrument like a violin and to train their ears. And um, because yeah. the, physically the body needs to develop before yeah, it needs to you start be more that. mature. That it's just not ready to take the abuse of everyday uh, training, vocalizing, and and putting the voice together. Um, yeah, you have talked. You're very modest. You, you know, for a guy who who could have um, quite the ego, you you really don't. And and you always say that you've been very lucky that a lot of what has happened comes from luck. But is that really true? Are there farmers and truckers and football players walking around with the the spectacular voice that you have? Is that possible? Yeah, so I, I've known people who have ex- really exciting instruments, uh, but for some other reason, they cannot, they cannot uh, perform um, with nerves or all the other things that go together to put together a career. So... So growing up in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and not really imagining a life as an opera singer yet, you got to high school and you you performed in Oklahoma as right. Judd Fry. It's very funny. I just recently got a, a, a letter from the boy, from the fellow who was uh, Curly. I was Judd Fry. I was the villain. And just in all those years, I haven't seen him. And he just recently sent me a beautiful letter about that time that uh, I was, and that's really what got me started. Uh, uh, the teacher there at school heard my voice singing, I guess. Actually, the, the guy who was curly was sitting in chorus next to me, and he suggested to the teacher that I'd be great as Judd Fry in this production. So um, that teacher was an aspiring opera singer, and uh, he and a group of his friends were forming a little opera group, opera company, and they asked me if I wanted to be in this opera company, and I didn't know anything about opera. To me, all I knew about opera were these ladies on what they called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which was a radio program, and they'd come on and sing opera, and they all sounded like screeching chickens to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, So that's all, but I liked the teacher. He was a, lot, a really wonderful person, and and uh, so I said, sure, why not? And I went and I joined them, and I started singing when I was 17 years old in these uh, opera workshop productions. And I liked it. I enjoyed doing it and uh, enjoyed getting uh, uh, the response from people about after my singing. And it, to me, it becomes sort of like a drug that you know the re- you get a good response from from listeners and you sort of need more of it you know you you pursue it and and work harder to try to make it better and uh, and that's that's what sort of led me this this teacher eventually uh after 3 or 4 years working with them uh we would go we would go to the opera house in New York all, uh 3 or 4 times a week as standees at the old met and at one point uh, they were auditioning and um my teacher at that time said, well, I'm going to have you audition for the Met. And I did. I auditioned, and they said, come back next year and <laughs> give it a try. But in the meantime, they were forming an, a, a, a touring company, a small like a farm team. And I sang for them, and they hired me for that. And that, that was the beginning. Do you remember what you used for your audition? 
when you got hired for the farm team? The first time I sang is interesting because what I sang for my audition for the, the opera house itself was uh, the character Alvise in La Gioconda again. Uh, a very dramatic, very evil kind of older man, kind of. And I was 18, 19 years old, uh, 20 years old, and I sang this piece. No, 24 years old when I sang that, and uh, that they felt that was all wrong. You know, I should be singing something like Marriage of Figaro, Figaro, or something, a younger character. Um, but it still, they found the voice very interesting. And uh, halfway through that season, that, that touring company season. They were uh, had they they were auditioning uh, singers from the company, the the big Met, and uh, I went there and sang the audition, and I was about to sing a very dramatic piece, and um, uh, Rudolf Bing, who was the general manager at the time, came down to the footlights and said to me, said, "Mr. Plischka, I understand you're a buffo." And I said, well, no, I'm not a buffo. I happened to be singing a, a comic part at that time. And uh, he uh, said, well, s uh, sing, sing the buffo thing for me. And I did. And they made me an offer to singing buffo characters. And uh, for some bizarre reason, I said, no, I, I won't accept that contract unless you give me some dramatic pieces, some dramatic characters to sing. And I guess they felt sorry for me and, <laughs> and said, all right, we'll give you some of those things too. And uh, the first year, two or three years, I was singing uh, mostly comic character parts and none of the dramatic roles. But as those three or four years went by, they heard that the voice was more than just, uh, just the comic voice. And uh, they started giving me more and more of the more dramatic parts. Eventually, I left those all behind and did only the dramatic repertoire uh, until later in the end of my career where the voice is not necessarily as important in these comic parts. Uh, I was able to go continue this career by singing these, um, these uh, ca character parts, again, coming back to it. So I started with it, sang the, the dramatic stuff in the middle, and then uh, sort of end came on the down downside of the hill with the with the uh, comic parts, which I really liked. I mean, when I first was doing them in uh, in the beginning, I really learned to like them because they're they're multi-dimensional characters. They're not just simple stand there kind of operas. What we call uh, we have a phrase for park and bark. We call it park <laughs> and bark. <laughs> and uh, and you, but these characters were much more. You have to be more flexible. You have to move better and have better timing. Get a better sense of um, the stagecraft. You know. Uh, so I enjoyed doing it in the beginning, but then I, as I went into this, the dramatic stuff, I always felt that it was I really would like to come back to it someday, and I did. That's why I was able to stretch it out for so long. So a lot of people aren't familiar with the idea of a repertory company or uh, a, a performing arts company that gives you a contract for a season. So how did this work? The, the opera each year would offer you a contract. And as I'm asking this question, I'm hearing the music coming in and telling me that we're about to go to break. So we'll have to address this when we come back. You're listening to coastline. Paul Plischka sang with the Metropolitan Opera for half a century. After this short break, we'll find out which role was for him the top of the mountain 
I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. 1,672. That's the number of performances operatic bass Paul Plischka has performed for the Metropolitan Opera. He retired in 2012, then was called back in 2016 to play Benoit and Alcindoro in La Boheme. He's done more recordings than any other Metropolitan Opera artist, and he's performed at every major opera house around the world. So just before we went to break, Paul Plischka, I had asked you what it's like to get a new contract every year as part of a company like at the Met. Did you negotiate each one, or would they just come to you with the contract and say, here it is, sign please, and you were just happy to be there? Yes. Well, um, you are are offered... uh, Usually yearly, yearly. But uh, the more famous singer becomes, uh, sometimes these contracts are done three, four, five, six years in advance. And uh, com- the company, opera company, is sometimes rolling the dice because you don't know what's going to happen to that singer in three, four, five years, six years. But for me, uh, I was with that national company, that touring company they had, and they offered me this contract. And it, at the time, I was making $250 a week. This is 1967 for the national company, singing four or five times a week. And uh, that was a lot of money for me at that time. Uh, But then when they hired me to go into the Met, they offered me this contract with uh, about 30 roles to learn. And it was for 200, did I say 250? The first one was 250. This one at the Met was 200. It was $50 less. Uh, But uh, that was... uh, because I wasn't traveling. So uh, anyway, I accepted it and uh, learned all those roles. And then it was a successful year, and then the following year they offered me another contract, and each year we'd go up a little bit in in money. Um, But then uh, it was a a normal contract. You were hired to do whatever you want. But then after 10 years or so, I stopped doing that and just did performance. I I wasn't like a regular contract singer. I would just perform... uh, two or three different roles that year and be maybe 10, 15, 20 performances, uh, 30 performances maybe. And uh, then I was free to travel around the world to go to different opera houses and wherever, all of Europe and the Far East and South America and every place. Um, so uh, so contracts are done that way. They're usually done by, by a, a, a performance of some opera that they want to hear you sing uh, but for me, I, I sort of made the Met uh, my home base, so I was able to uh, end up doing uh, maybe 50, 60 performances a, a year at the Opera House uh, each year. 
That where some a, people come in would only do five or six performances, and they go, go they go on somewhere else. And and that takes a toll on your voice. It's it's incredibly physically demanding. Can you just talk about what it is to sing? Well, again, I seem to go back to baseball all the time in these pitchers. Uh, you know, a pitcher only pitches every three or four days, and now these days they don't even pitch a whole game. They pitch you know a third of a game. Uh, the same with an opera singer. You after you sing a performance, your voice needs a couple of days to recover from it. You can't do that every single night. It just it just can't take it. Um, uh, so, uh, so you have to really space out the yeah. frequency of your yeah. performances. I, I would think in a year, it would probably average out to maybe 60 to 80 performances a year that an opera singer could do. And the rest of the time, you're recovering. Because you also have the rehearsal times that you're, you know, and coaching and learning the repertoire. It's a lot of, lot of use of the voice. And if you don't use it correctly, if you're singing with a, a, a technique that is not really strong and solid, you can do a lot of, a lot of damage to the throat. You um, stuck with the same voice teacher for your entire career, beginning to end. How yep. unusual is that? It's pretty unusual. Uh, in fact, uh, recently I went to uh, was at an event with James Levine, and uh, we were. I went and we were chatting, and I said to them, you know, Jimmy, we we have never, at all the performances we've done, over 300, and in all the time we've spent in rehearsals, you and I have never really had a one-on-one uh, rehearsal uh, meeting, coaching session. And he said to me, you know why, Paul? And I said, why? He said, because you had Boyajin, and I never had to worry about you. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that was my teacher. This is my yeah. voice teacher. Our he men knew voyage. him. He knew the, the, his theory with voice and how to take care of the voice. And um, that, I thought that was a great compliment to my teacher, Armin Boyajin. Yeah. And what a, you've also talked about the fact that too many cooks in the kitchen can really confuse a yeah. singer and shorten a singer's uh, career, and you were really careful about that. You only listened to a few people. Who were those people that you listened to? Well, it was obviously my wife and my uh, teacher. The two of the ones, they're the people that know me and heard me from the very beginning, and they could tell very quickly if I was doing something incorrectly, because we're on a, we're on a really fine line of, of singing correctly. And, and very often, if you get off that line little ways to one side or the other side of the line, you can't really tell. You, to you, it sounds it's okay, but the person who knows your voice that belongs in that 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 straight line on that fence, um, they can tell right away, and they'll come back and tell you. You know, I, I always had this a couple examples. Uh, uh, the voice uh, for a bass, a tendency the bass has is to get the voice to become over thick and over, over dark and over, and that can be very very dangerous. And um, uh, I. But it's also to the list to the to the singer. It's something that he enjoys. I'll give you an example. There's uh, in the in Don Giovanni, the opera Don Giovanni, the character Leporello begins the opera singing Notte Giorno Fatti Cari. He sings, um, and it has a tendency to get heavier. It gets Notte Giorno Fatti Cari Merci Nulla, and this kind of thick, rich sound, which the singer feels really great. You think you're sounding really great. And my teacher and my wife would come backstage and they would say, 
what are you doing? It's just too dark and too muffled, and it's, it's not projecting out into the theater. And I would know immediately how to correct it, and I would go back to Notte giorno faticar per chi nulla, which is a much brighter, brighter yes. kind of sound, and which will project into the theater as opposed to the darker sound, which is not going anywhere. So I would correct it. I, and, but fortunately, I had their ears out there in the theater to tell me that it was not right. And who uh, did you ever hear from people whose opinions you had to put aside and say, that's not what my teacher or my wife is telling me? And, and yeah. how were you wise enough to know that you should do that? You just have to, you know, it's a little bit of Russian roulette. You, you spin that barrel, point it at your head, and hope <laughs> to God you've chosen the right person to listen to. You know? Um, yeah. It's, but it's can you think easy. of a time when someone said to you, you know, Paul, you should really think about this? Yeah, and you do. do well, they do. You go to coaching sessions with uh, rehearsals, and the, uh, the conductor or the assistant conductor will say, do this, do that. And you say, oh, uh, you learn over the years, say, yes, Maestro, that, no problem, I'll do that. And when it comes to the performance, you do exactly what you think is right. And they come back and they tell you, Paul, that was perfect. <laughs> And we've talked about directors and how over the years directors have gotten more powerful in terms of, uh, I guess, the authority that they have. Was there ever a time a director would tell you to do something a certain way and you thought, "Mm, not right? Nothing of consequence. I mean, sometimes little things. And and you you try. We're, We're... here, singers are here as a, uh, they're not creative artists, I don't think. Singers are interpretive artists. You interpret what the first place, what the composer had in mind. You tried to stick, I tried to stick best to what the composer had in mind. Uh, but these days, a lot of the directors uh, try to change things a bit and make things a little different. And it depends. I mean, I've never ran come into a, a head on but kind of thing where you'd say, absolutely not. I will not do that. And because there are singers who've walked out of productions because they could not do what the director wanted in, in, all, in all conscience. You told me that uh, Don Carlo was singing Philip was one of your favorite roles. And didn't you sing Don Carlo when you were very young? And there were certain notes... Right. Well, you couldn't when, when, quite when was, read. See, what, this teacher that I had, Armin, was I was with him since I was 17 years old, very, very young. And we started doing these operas at the opera company as I was 20, 21. And a role like Philip in Don Carlo is for a very mature base. And uh, I was 19, 20 year old kid, 21 year old kid. And so my teacher had the sense to know that and to realize that he couldn't push me to make the voice something it really wasn't yet. And so we would do things in the opera where it came to an aria where there was a section that I could not do correctly, and we would change the music. <laughs> we, would, you know, <laughs> we would sing it down an octave or do something that didn't, I wasn't forcing my voice to do something it's not ready to do. But in, eventually, over the next few years, it was a, you could work it, work it slowly so that it, you were able to, to do those uh, things that the role requires. And so, so Don Carlo, this Verdi opera in five acts, was written originally in French? Correct. I think the Met is doing it now in French. Uh, that mostly it's done in Italian. 
But I think the Met in its production that they're showing right now, it's in French. And you sang and it in I've Italian. I've done it French, yeah. You I've, have done it I've in done French, it in French as well. Also. And it's slightly different. It, it comes off in a different way, um, different type of passion. Between the Italian passion and French passion, what, I guess. how would you I articulate the know. difference? I, excuse me. How would you articulate the difference between French passion and Italian passion? I don't know. The Italian is right in your face, and the French one is maybe coming around the corner. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great image. I don't know. I don't know. So we're going to we're going to hear a little bit from Don Carlo in which you play Philip and this is when when you're a little bit older and ready for this role and right. at the time you said I think you told the New York Times this role was the top of the mountain for you. Right. So tell us from act 3 you're alone suffering from insomnia. What are you saying in this? Well, this this scene is really, uh, I think, one of this scene and the following scene with the Grand Inquisitor of Spain is probably one of the most perfect operatic creations that that there was out there. And I, uh, my teacher and I, we we really liked the Italian repertoire more than anything else. That's where we concentrated. That's where we tried to make my voice correct for. And uh, so when I eventually had the chance to sing. Philip at the Metropolitan Opera on a radio broadcast, at a television broadcast. It was broadcast on TV. And uh, uh, to me, that was the top of the hill. You couldn't get any better than that. But a few years later, I had the opportunity to sing at the Met Boris Gudunov, the role of the Tsar Tsar Boris. And and that is one of the truly great bass parts. And... uh, to me, that was, I said, well, there's a little bit more than the top of this. The hill's getting a little higher. But then there was something waiting around the corner for me, which was Falstaff. And Falstaff put all those other ones in the dust. And we're going to talk about Falstaff in a, in a couple of minutes. Yeah. But first, but let's... let me go back to the Don Carlo. Yes, the, the, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah well, it's Philip. He's, he's um, about to... Uh, well, I can go back to the, the son. His, his son is giving him a hard time, <laughs> and uh, and his son is in love with my wife in in the opera, and uh, has been. And, and to make things politically uh, correct, earlier earlier on in the, in the opera, he's uh, the one the woman he's the son is in love with. Uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth is the is go, is going to be the King Philip's wife, but Philip knows that somehow or other she doesn't really love him, and that's what this aria is basically about. That he's all alone in his room and his son is rebelling against him, and uh, it's pretty sad and introspective. And you're all alone on the stage. It's a wonderful moment, and it's very bel canto kind of uh, moment. Okay, let's listen.
that was Paul Plischka singing King Philip in the opera Don Carlo. When you hear that now, what do you think? Well, normally it would make me just want to scream with with just terror because I can't do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing the distance from where you were to where you come. But I've had so much great time with it. I, I cannot go back there. I cannot go and and be envious of what it was, what it was, because it was a great time. And, and the voice, to me, it's the way I wanted it to be. It's what I envisioned that it should be, and uh, I'm happy. Yeah, you know, you've you've talked about the fact that you started playing buffo roles and then graduated into more serious roles and title roles and migrated back to Bufo and bringing with you a richness to the role that maybe you didn't have that first time around. But you're so, you seem so well adjusted about the fact that the voice just changes. Oh, you just walk, just walk out. I just reached, I just reached 80 years old. Last summer I was 80 years old. And up until I was 80 years old, I, uh, I've always sort of pictured myself as maybe, I don't know, 59, 60, or something like that. I didn't seem 80 years old. Uh, and then suddenly, when I reached 80 years old, I see 80-year-old people walking around, and I say, holy mackerel, that's me, sort of all humped over and craw- craw- crawling <laughs> up the street. <laughs> Am I walking like that? I, I, don't, I don't know. But I, I, again, so thankful, so unbelievably thankful for what I've had. Uh, and and to go back and listen. I don't often listen to old things. Um, I have lots of other interests, so uh, I, I don't I don't need to go back there. I don't need to live there and dwell in that place. And when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about some of those other interests. We're also going to talk about Falstaff. You're listening to Coastline. I'm talking with former Met Opera singer Paul Plischka. And we'll continue our exploration when we come back from this break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Paul Plischka grew up in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, fully expecting to become a farmer, perhaps a trucker, maybe even a football player. But after playing Judd Fry in his high school production of Oklahoma, a voice teacher introduced him to the world of opera, and he went on to perform for the Metropolitan Opera for 50 years, longer than most singers can sustain a career, as well as performing at all the major opera houses around the world. One of, you you talked about the fact, Paul Plischka, that your voice teacher and you focused a lot on the Italian operas. Uh, 
And there is the Verdi opera, Macbeth. Who did you play in that particular uh, opera? The character for the bass is Banquo. And, uh, and he uh, has a wonderful aria in this thing. It's one of the good parts about this opera is that he gets to go home early. He gets killed off early in the opera. <laughs> uh, a lot of times, bassists look around for the different operas that they could go home early with. And, uh, Seriously? No, oh, I'm joking. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, this because another thing we have to talk about is the operatic tradition of taking curtain calls, bows in oh, between right. acts, which yep. is something that doesn't happen in uh, other kinds of theater. Right. So that way, you could you could actually uh, go home early, of taking your solo call. But recently, they've not been allowing that. You have to sit around the whole night waiting for the opera to end. And they say you keep your makeup on, costume and makeup. And some costumes and makeup are very unpleasant to be in. And you have to hang out, especially when they glue the beards on you, these things. It's terrible. Anyway, the, uh, the Banquo uh, is, is talking to his son, explaining that, uh, uh, that he's about to uh, be very, very careful because they're nasty things are in, in the in the coming are coming and and as soon as he finishes the sun runs off he chases the sun because the these uh, assassins are coming to get him banquo and they do they, he gets killed in that scene all right let's listen Thank you. 
Plishka singing Banquo in Verdi's Macbeth. Let's talk about Falstaff. That was another one of your mountains. Yep. And so so this is a title role, but Falstaff is a clown in a lot of ways. Well, not really. I mean, yes and no in a lot of ways. He, At one point, he was very, uh, very close to Hal, I mean, the, the king, the king, eventual king, and they were you know, drinking buddies, you know, and uh, at this point, and he's come on much harder times, and he's remembering all those great times that they had, and and who he was, and what the important character he was, Sir John Falstaff. Mm-hmm. That's just not John Falstaff, Sir John Falstaff. So he had to have some, but he also is a point in his life where he not, doesn't really care what other people think, and he's uh, you know just for for him in, in the opera he. he in the play, at least in the staging we had, um, he uh, is, gets is after pursuing these two women, and they the women of course plot against him, and they bring him this uh, the, bring him this money that uh, to uh, give him this sack of money, and you would think at the end because he was made a fool of that he would get the money they would have to give the money back, but he he never de- gives the money back. He keeps the money the whole time. <laughs> so he, that's all he was after. I mean, he really wasn't after the two women. Yeah, they could be, but the money was more important to him. And anyway, the, the character is so so to me so real, so very very real, and it came uh, it came at a time in my life where. Uh, Toward the end of the career, toward toward the ninety three, ninety two, I guess it was, uh, where you, um, you know, you've tried to do what other directors and what conductors you try to please everybody else. You're always trying to please somebody, and Falstaff reached a point in his life, I think, where he doesn't give a damn about anybody except himself and where his next bottle of wine is coming from, and uh, you know, sort of your own. In your own life, you reach a point where I'm going to do it my way. I mean, you know, if you don't want it, don't get somebody else. Somebody so there's else. the gravitas. I mean, there is gravitas there, and oh, there's yeah. tragedy there, yeah. certainly. Tragedy. But one of the compelling things about that character is that he ultimately makes a decision right. to laugh. Yeah, yeah. To, to the monde, yeah, at the end. But, but, but even before that, the part where he gets dumped in the creek. <laughs> he gets dumb and he comes back and he's he's pondering pondering his. He's in a laundry basket. No, he's, he's hiding in a laundry he's, basket, he's, and they toss him out the window into the River right, Thames. Right, exactly. And then he comes crawling out, realizing, you know, looking at himself, what he really is, and he's looking looking at his gray hairs and how he's he's come on these terrible times and it's falling apart, but 
after he gets a little bit of wine and things start to sparkle again, and he's reaching, and suddenly it's like those crickets. He's talking about grilli. The crickets are starting to percolate him and getting back, and he's back in the game again. You know? <laughs> and uh, it's a great character. It's a great, 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 great character. You told a reporter with the New York Times that you enjoyed playing Falstaff so much that you'd, you'd go home at night and by four o'clock in the morning, you'd miss him. Right, you'd I'd miss, miss being, being him. him. Yeah, and you suddenly have once you leave the stage. You know, the stage is a funny place. You, you, you are a regular, normal person in real life, and you're not on the stage. But when you go on, I always felt that in the wings, there's a guy there. There's like a toll booth there, and you go on the stage. Just before you go on, you, he gives you a little paper. And it said, this passport allows you to do anything you want to do, to be anybody you want to be, all these different characters. No one's going to laugh at you. No one's going to make fun of you because of what you're doing. You can go out there and do whatever you want as this character. And then when you leave the stage, he's waiting there for you. He takes that paper back. Then from here on on, you have to be proper and do it. But once you go through that, onto that stage, then you can do all these things. Be and these different people. Falstaff was one of the most well, freeing characters you'd ever played. Yes. But, you know, you make, you make um, even little short ones. There's a character, the sacristan in Tosca, um, uh, that it's, a, it's just in the first scene of the opera, first act, and it's, he's just a caretaker of the church. But yet he's got a big personality, you know, and, and you can make that character. A lot of that character I use in Falstaff, you know, that and. Um, you know, you make it, it's his little domain, that church area where he takes care of. He's the king of that area. He's the boss of that area. And you can make something really big out of that. Even the characters in Blah Boheme, the, the Alcindoro and Benoit, Benoit especially, he uh, comes in and he wants to, uh, wants to collect the rent. But so you make it, you can do it very timidly or you can do it very strongly. I mean, uh, different ways of creating these characters. And it's fun to to do that, to create characters. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm getting the signal about the duet with Luciano Pavarotti. And we're going to put that on our website instead of playing it here, because there's so much more to talk about in terms of, of how you approach some of these roles and Falstaff in particular. You lent me a DVD and, and it was directed by Franco Zeffirelli, mm-hmm. produced by mm-hmm. Zeffirelli. Yeah. And there were so many close-ups on you as Falstaff. And certainly there were on others, but but not as much. And you were wearing a costume that that made you appear morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. And you had to sort of navigate this costume, and so, so you did um, a, a, the very large, exaggerated movements mm-hmm. of this very large man. But you also had this incredibly nuanced and uh, complex characterization that would come out in these close-ups that the audience never would have seen except yeah. for on the camera. Can yeah. you talk yeah. about how that came through you? Um, well, before I came to the rehearsals there, I had actually lost a lot of weight. I had been one of my lower times. And when I came to the opera house that day for the first time, uh, one of the general managers of the opera house saw me coming in. He says, Paul, what did you do? What did you do? Our Falstaff, what happened? And, of course, they have to pad you. They put all this heavy, heavy, heavy padding on you. And um, it just, I just loved the character so much. 
it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. I mean, I had great people around me uh, helping with the direction and, and hints and characters, and I watched a lot of older uh, recordings. I listened to a lot of recordings of older guys who've done done it, different. There's a hundred ways to do a role, and uh, so you you do a lot of research into it uh, to build what you feel is right for the character and. And I, I just loved him. I loved, loved being him, and I missed him. And I, so the next performance, I couldn't wait for the next performance to go back and be him. Um, and you really were. So this tradition of in opera of taking curtain calls in between acts, mm. you don't do that in traditional theater, perhaps because people are afraid of breaking the, the illusion. Right. After you got tossed out the window in the laundry basket into the river... Every, the rest of the cast comes on, and they all take bows, and you're nowhere to be found. And then you come sort of mincing onto the stage, looking soaking wet, even yeah. though you weren't. Yeah. But you looked that yeah. way. Yeah. You embodied it yeah. and took a bow. Is, is that something you worked out with the director? Or how do you think Not about really. that? really. It's the way you feel after that scene. You know, you want to – and you just want to – is the one moment where you actually reach into the audience because I think I remember in this thing that he walks out, takes the bow, just not even not acknowledging, and then all of a sudden, he, as he's about to leave, he looks back at them and says, "Oh yeah, you think so? You think you got me? I'm not finished yet. I'll be back," kind of thing, you know. That <laughs> um, that just comes out natural. That that just flow of the character. You're in that character, and it flows out of you. And we just have a minute left. You are retired now. You said you have so many other interests. One of them is bonsai trees. Yep. I, have, I belong to the Cape Fear Bonsai Society here in Milbington. And we're, in fact, we're having a show coming up pretty soon in March. I uh, hope you'll all come over to the Arboretum to see the wonderful trees that our uh, members of our club uh, have created. Uh, I also belong to Cape Fear Camera Club. We do a lot of uh, for bird uh I do a lot of bird uh, photography, getting out there, and I'm leaving somebody out. What are some of the more spectacular birds that you feel lucky to have seen in the Cape Fear region? Oh, my goodness. Well, right now we've been very lucky with this mountain bluebird. It showed up here. It doesn't belong here. It belongs on the West Coast. And everybody and his uncle has been there. for the last, This bird has been staying in the same place for the last two weeks. Wow. And... We never have enough time. That's this edition of Coastline. Paul Plishka, what an incredible pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. you. I I wish I got a little better start, but uh, it's been fun. We're going to have you back. Heartfelt thanks also to Dorothy Rankin and Churchill Hornstein for making this possible. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.